Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you this uh, July 5th? You know, I I feel it is July 5th, David. I, I'm I'm pretty good. It, it it has gotten hot. I recovered from a couple of really <laughs> very strange live performance gigs, which I'm very grateful I was uh part of. Um, but it it definitely is a major shift into the the scorching part of summer here. And I think that has changed the, the mood a little bit. But I had a good good fourth. Uh, I take it you did a lot of family stuff. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We went down to Lawton and spent the better part of the week shuttling the kid between relatives so that they could all ooh and ah and watch him play with Legos. And I don't really see what the big deal is. I get that for free every day so but they were all about it and uh a lot of food with legos do they enjoy (laughs) you play with legos that's what i would think would be interesting that would be interesting it would be if i just became a drooling catatonic dad who just was completely unresponsive unless somebody communicated to me in baby talk so if you were to say david hey david Dada, Baba, Dada, outside. I'd be like, oh, what's up, Chris? You need to go outside? Cool. Yeah, let's do it, man. (laughs) But yeah, lots of pasta and lots of uh, fun times and swimming pools and, you know, just good. But, you know, those extended weekends do come with their own feeling of anxiety when you're busy. Uh, So I'm glad to be back to the production grind. I enjoy this kind of thing. Yeah, me too. I, that's a good way to sum it up. I feel really glad to be back, uh, you know, in in the normal groove. I know that the major holidays, particularly for four families, are really important. But I, I kind of feel always grateful to have them behind me, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it just is, It I wouldn't say they're an inconvenience. I don't want to be crass about it, but... I don't know. Uh, I also think there's a kind of summer fun thing that's very hard to crank up for unless it just is kind of organic. You know, it really, it's got to just find you somehow. And I think you've got to be open to it. You know, I understand that. But I think that there can be this this sort of weird, you know, pressure, you know. And wait a minute. Uh, And little things like the raving controversy still about the Bud Light brand. I mean, Mm -hmm. I heard a lot of people talking about that and talking now about the commercials. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to talk about that. I don't like Bud Light beer. (laughs) I I understand what that, you know, the whole issue. But it seems to me that summer fun is what was going on there. And that seems harder and harder to find in just a sincere, basic, let's not think about it too much, you know, sort of way, you know? I agree. I agree. I'm the same as you when it comes to holidays. I like the spirit to take me over. 
I don't like the feeling of obligation that comes along with, you know, we, oh, we had, now's the time we have to go see fireworks and now we have to pack up the car and go see the family because I'm much more of the mode of going to visit family when we want to, when we miss yeah. them, when we want to see them. Same with Christmas. I've told Rios this a hundred times and it, you know, I participate in Christmas because I'm not a Grinch and everybody would hate me if I did this, but I told her I would much prefer to just give you gifts whenever I see something that reminds me of you. Yeah. Or, and you guys do that really well. I really yeah. admire that. You kind of have a fun gift. Yeah. That's an interesting, positive way to look at this. I, I mm-hmm. think I like that tweak of the dial because it, uh, I think that's very apropos of what I what I was really trying to say is that it, it's not these major mood things. It's it's feeling like you have to be you know pulling in harness and be in rhythm with these big moments at at the right time. And and you think, well, I don't know. I mean, particularly things like gen- the generosity of the Christmas spirit and the summer fun. I just don't think you can just go find, I think you need to find those when, when you find them, you know, exactly. You know, exactly. Well, do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? I, I, well, I, yes, I do. I do. Okay. The band is called dogs per minute. Do you know what that comes from? No. Where's that from? Okay, we've just had a great American tradition, and my friend uh, Phil in L.A. is kind of obsessed with it, and he was watching it live and uh, was giving me, you know, constant sort of updates of it. But it's the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Competition in Coney Island, so it's competitive eating. And the DPM, the dogs per minute, I think is a wonderful uh just I love the phrase uh but then he broke down some of the techniques that are used and we've talked about competitive eating at some point in the past I know on on the show I I find it just bizarre you know I really really do I think it's it's almost something that is so weird that it doesn't seem to be able to attract the kind of analysis that I think it should you know, it just seems always a little bit too carnival, too under the radar. Don't make such a big deal out of it kind of thing. And a lot of the, uh, well, those elite competitive eaters who uh, consistently win these. And this is the guy who won it is like the reigning champion for, you know, I don't know, decades or something. They don't sort of fit the bill of, of people uh well, they don't fit my stereotype. I'm not sure what that would be, you know, mm-hmm. actually, when I think about it. But um, I don't know. I liked that idea. And this is the kind of the theme of the band, because they are really trying to uh, embody some classic archetypal sound moments, whether it be, say, the Beach Boys in the summer sort of sense, or Nirvana, Nirvana in a kind of you know, punk club grunge sort of thing. And they're constantly seeking out these great American music forms of the last 50 years and just 
having them disassemble in every track. And the disassemble is very different than the deconstructionist thing I've pushed in the past, because this is a little bit more poignant. And all of their songs have a kind of, not just an ironic snark, but a real sort of after echo of the end of empire in rock and roll terms, the end of, and that's one of the, you and I've talked about this. I'm really feeling that we are in the terminal stages of the age of rock and roll, which started in really post-war mid Mm -hmm. mid 20th century. And I think Mm -hmm. it's getting to the point where it's a little bit hideous, you know, Mm -hmm. and two of their songs uh, well, one is a variation on Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb, which I think is Roger Waters' sort of major anthem. His whole his whole body of lyrics and concept, I think, fits into that piece. And that's also uh, probably the most important major guitar solo. Um and it's when the band was was together. Um, really, they were they were very very strong functioning. But dogs per minute turns comfortably numb into boneless. You know, and we've talked about bonelessness before. We talked about bloodlessness. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember going past a, a barbecue sign of for boneless Thursdays. And I think I mentioned that on the show. And I think bonelessness and invertebrateness is sort of a little Mm. bit too much where we all are. Um, And they have another song called Let's Sploot. Sploot's a great verb. Do you know what that means? Uh, No, what does that mean? Okay, it's a really cool... uh, it's getting some attention. It's been around for a long time. Splooting is where animals, particularly rodents, whether they be, well, it's like squirrels and rabbits, you see them. They splay themselves out to get cooler. They usually try to find shade, cool ground, or wet ground. And there was a bunny out by one of my sprinklers today. And they're, they're splayed completely out. So they maximize surface tent, you know, uh, awareness mm-hmm. of damp or cooler sort of things so let's sploot is you know a kind of fun summer song that is trying to be young and happy and of course it turns out that it's completely about anxiety and cancel culture and uh somebody od'd and it's just this you know everything gets in the way of of summer fun and being young so it's kind of a, a little bit of an edge to the band, but the but the yeah. title, Dogs Per Minute, they're still trying. They're they're trying to retain that uh well, what was the fun part of rock and roll, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Are your parents yeah. home? You know, that kind of thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, I remember when rock music used to be really fun. And I do think that guitar music is making its way back there's a genre called indie sleaze which just takes sounds from 70s psychedelia and kind of repackages them 
But I like this idea in particular of the nostalgic echo of fun times, but the idea that those times are really gone if they were ever here to begin with. I think you see that a lot with contemporary British dub composers, not dubstep, but dub, uh-huh. uh, such as Burial and Code 9 and, and people like that. You know, they have these four on the floor beats with kind of echoing, usually female vocals that sound like they're in a distant cave somewhere. And so it's evoking this sense of a kind of late 80s, early 90s club scene but you're you're on the dance floor and everything is just completely post-apocalyptic everything's falling apart none of the lights are on and you're just listening to the ghosts of that time of those parties that kind of uh well that's what mark fisher would call hauntology right so dogs per minute feels like a hauntological re-examination of the time rock was fun yeah, excellent, excellent. That's exactly. Thank you. You've really, really done what you do so well. Uh, bring that really into focus, and I, I think that is a, an idea and a mood and almost a kind of uh, musical key that is really worth investigating because I think it is the heart and soul of of a very, very important element of where we're at today. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. I would definitely be looking for that. It feels like a lot of modern rock music. I got to be honest, I'm at that time. It's not doing it for me anymore because so much of it is glitched out and computerized. And I love a good collage, but these songs that are two minutes long and it feels like the musician has packed 12 songs into one. I don't know, man. I just don't, it doesn't do anything for me anymore. I like good, good pop songwriting. I like Damon Albarn a lot. I think he's a contemporary guy who's, he's the guy who um, he was in Blur and his current group is called the the Gorillas. They're that animated group. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's, he's a really good pop composer, but a lot of it now is a, uh, I don't really listen to very much music anymore that has words in it. I like Brian Eno and Tim Hecker and guys like that. Mood music. Yeah, you know, well, that's where I'm at. That's certainly where yeah. I'm at. I I find really that um, every time I try to introduce lyrics or words or wallscapes of, of language, uh, and I've got a lot to offer in that you know, frame. Of course. Yeah. I, I, it, it doesn't really, it, it kind of gets in my way. I think that's kind of what I'm trying to escape from. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I find it, I, I haven't found that, that mesh. Um, I did do a, a sort of a weird, really broken piece on two of the um, in, instruments that I've improvised based on some existing, you know, things that, that are there. I've, I haven't invented the ideas, but I've, I've kind of repackaged them and, and formulated my own housing and situation. Uh, sort of a weird medley of the star spangled banner, a la Jimi Hendrix with a lot of distortion and uh blue moon, you know, which is, mm-hmm. I think is the haunting lost American songbook 
Uh, the Cowboy Junkies did a beautiful version of that. And I think that really worked really well. But when I was trying to sort of integrate some vocal spoken word stuff into that, I decided, no, I didn't really want to do that. I didn't want to, I, I just, I wanted to leave that stand on its own. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm right with you on that front. I think that that paired back, uh, trying to find the music, trying to get away from the really super synthesized MIDI sounds. I don't think it's possible to get away from them. I mean, I've got a MIDI controller here. Uh, I've got, you know, several, but I've got a lot of acoustic instruments too. Um, and uh, I don't know if I've shown you the whole. Oh, so cool. That's one marimba. And then there's the other. Well, there's lots of stuff. There's just. So I try to balance that out. But I think that, that what we're talking about is, is very essential to some of the confusion and I think some of the sorrow of, of this time. And I think it's interesting that it reaches across generations. It, it, it doesn't surprise me that I'm acutely aware of it, but I think you're as aware of it. And I think that means something important, you know, that we're getting that it's a, it's a very ecumenical sorrow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Absolutely. Which brings me to your aphorism. Yeah. Is it? Well, you know, I think it, I, I look, I think it's, it's open well, I'm sure some people would give me flack, but I'm going to stand by it. When men and women converse, the first and principal subject is really always women and men. And I... I ran that past some people who happen to be who aren't men. And it was interesting that just there was great resistance to that. And then uh, in a couple of other instances, there was absolute total agreement, total agreement on the part of, of, of two. And I, and I was thinking that that's interesting because uh well, I, I feel like I have uh, I, I start on a better uh, footing with them to move forward to other conversational topics. Mm-hmm. 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 So, yeah, I would agree with that. I would say, even when that's not explicitly so, that it's like you were saying, it's the implicit framework of all the conversations. That's how I feel about conversations with my wife it's it's interesting to learn a female perspective because if i'm being honest i don't typically seek those out and i'm okay with that i'm cool with that i don't need to qualify that but her and my mother and my sister are kind of my female vectors for understanding their perspective i had eaten a bunch of pasta over the weekend and i was complaining to no one in particular about how I was so tired from eating so much food. But anytime I would try to lay down that tomato sauce would try to burn me up, you know? And uh, my sister said, imagine that, but for 10 months, then that's how it feels to be pregnant. And my first thought was, well, I didn't really ask, 
<laughs> but it was interesting. I can kind of, I can learn from that. I also, by the way, before I forget, I had an, I had an idea for an aphorism and it's silly, oh. but it, it came to me when I was coming out of my car because I tend to, I live in a very safe area, right? I don't, I don't worry about much. So uh, I leave my keys in my car and sometimes I leave them in the ignition. And to pe- some people who live in certain areas, they might think that's it's like, why would you do that? And, you know, I have security cameras around my house, but it's generally a really safe area. But um, my mother noticed that and she said, why on earth do you have your keys in your car? It's such a bad idea. And then I thought of this aphorism, which is leaving your keys in your ignition is only a bad idea if someone decides to steal it. That's my aphorism. Okay. I, I think that's good. I think that has a nice rhythm to it. I think it's true. Because if you leave them in your car, you're saving yourself time because you don't have to look for them. They're right there in the ignition. That's saving you some time as well. And if you go through your whole life without anybody stealing your vehicle, then you've actually that's that's smarter on balance. Now, I wouldn't leave my keys in my ignition in Seattle or Portland. Right. Or Los Angeles, or really most places that weren't here. I get a good vibe here. But I like that idea, you know, sort of expanding that idea out is that there are a lot of things that we don't do because of the worst possible outcome of those things. When if you can accept and internalize the consequences of the worst possible outcome, you can give yourself nice little easy shortcuts. Uh, look, I, I, that really resonates with me because I, I, I understand prudence and I really understand alertness. You know, it, having a, a sense of what what the parameters are in terms of basic safety for where, wherever you are at any given moment. But uh, I really have some problems with people who have um, come from certain areas where they they bring a kind of ambient paranoia that I just think creates its own problems. They invite their magnets for whatever, because they want, and I think this is, you know, it's pretty obvious that, you know, I think the world does return to you what, what you project out onto it, you know? And if you are always thinking that someone's going to rip you off or that there's some trouble around, you know, well, you know, that could very well be what happens. Or you, and I have known, and actually I know some people from Seattle like this, uh, where their just natural default condition is one of, uh, it's so cynical about the nature of, of, of humans that it just kind of turns my stomach. Mm-hmm. It's like the heavy pasta, but without the good taste. You know, that's that's the indigestion yeah yeah Yeah. indigestion yeah i i liken it to while it does say something about my view on humanity which might surprise some listeners but on balance if i can meet you and see you and talk to you more than likely i'm going to like you there are a few people i don't like that i've met in real life you mentioned off mic a busy body that you're dealing with. I have a busy body in my neighborhood too. I don't like her very much. And it's always a her, isn't it? But 
the um i also just like the idea of these little just these little coin flips that you do you know if i'm going to be inside for 3 hours i kind of i it's not quite adrenaline it's not that intense of a feeling but it's kind of a cool feeling to just leave the keys there for 3 hours and not think about it and just flip a coin more than likely somebody's not going to take my car in this neighborhood and again this is not a game that i would play you know even going out to walmart I don't, this is very specifically my driveway in my neighborhood but i like that little you know with some those little safety bumpers that you can put on bowling lanes a little bit of coin flipping to mix metaphors probably i think there's three metaphors mixed in there but you see what i mean yeah, yeah, I do. And I, I don't, you know, the the anatomy of of the moments or, or the situations where, you know, something does happen that's bad, some sort of crime or vandalism or or, you know, maybe something more serious. I don't think that ever they peel back or break down to uh, some of those obvious sort of of mistakes of oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know what? <laughs> I, I I don't think that's how predation, you know, if we want to think of it that way works. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we can base our whole lives on that. And I too am really generally pretty optimistic about that, you know, and in, in overall results terms, that doesn't have to mean you're super optimistic about people all the time, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I've seen some more amazing things. Like I saw this one dude. I mean, he was just absolutely ripped to the tits on some drug. And I'm pretty sure out of his mind, just on his own. And uh, this woman dropped something crossing the street. And he picked it up and rushed after her and was prepared to deal with her fear of him because he looked pretty wild and here he was trying to return this i mean i mean i to me that was just pure heroism because he's cutting through hallucinations drug need worry about eating worry about everything worry about uh this woman saying something freaking out about him and, you know, he was really being a good Samaritan. And I know that that's an extreme, exa- you know, you can't expect that. But I think maybe the way to round this up is, is well, let's be careful what we expect, period. You know, let's not have too, you know, fixed a thing there. Let's just be open, you know. So you leave your keys in the car. And you're not expecting necessarily, oh, they they sure better be there. Otherwise, I'm going to be really disappointed with humanity. You know, Uh, no, you just accept, you know, just a light touch, touch sensitive on the keyboards, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that is not going to kill anybody or puts you in dire straits. I mean, I wouldn't love for my car to be stolen, but I have insurance. So, do you have an imaginative challenge for me today? I do, and I'm I'm hoping this is uh, well. This we haven't tried this before, and I thought it was time. Okay, uh, there are several 
uh, well, not several, but a couple of at least key philosophers uh, named Zeno. But I am thinking of Zeno of Elia, the most famous one, the ancient Greek city in southwest Italy. He came up with a series of beautifully crafted paradoxes that are very, very famous. And while he is known for four of them, the tortoise and Achilles, or the arrow that never reaches its target, people will heard of those. Uh, he's actually the, the creator of many. There's, mm -hmm. there's a lot more for, for readers to, to think about there. And I love the people who have found him fascinating, because I think they're all very interesting. Lewis Carroll, right into it. And Lewis Carroll would have been a lot more interesting a person to hang out with than I think even Oscar Wilde. I think Oscar Wilde was funny and witty and stuff, but Lewis Carroll was, I think, would have been more engaging. Kafka, of course, Borges and you know, John Cage, on and on. I love Zeno, and I've gone back to him. And the thing that really impresses me about him, he's he was an enormously humble man. He really believed that what he was doing was creating support for Parmenides, who is a major, major uh, pre-Socratic philosopher known for only one fragmented published work, which mm -hmm. takes the form of a poem. Uh, but Zeno is who we know a lot more about in popular culture terms or popular intellectual terms. Nobody knows about Parmenides unless you take a, a course at a university, really. So that is, I think, for starters, an inspiring point to begin with. And I think that we should all think about it's okay to be humble and, and be in support of a hero. I think this desperate need to be original and to be, you know, well, that wasn't his goal. And I think he achieved something very very significant. But I want you to focus on the notion of a paradox. And I think his four major ones are good examples. The arrow is probably the, the clearest in, in many people's mind. They all have to do with the question, is change real? This is what Parmenides was mainly involved in. He was trying to bring metaphysics together with the concept of physics. Does change actually happen? Is that possible? How can it be apparent physically when our logic and language and systems of epistemology seem to make that unreal? Does the unrealness come from language, culture, the ghost radio signal, the two writers in my new sort of phrasing, or is it really there, you know? And, but I think the idea of paradoxes or something that all lost explorers should really be savoring. And it's, I think it's a high literary uh, conceptual art form like the aphorism and the number of people who have been engaged in it are so significant and really fundamental to our pantheon of heroes. So I wanted to bring that into the mix. And I thought that with your just wonderful 
uh, laser on the prairie mind that you could come up with something that that did have these essences and resonances, but also worked at that walking down to the store to get a beer sort of level. So a kind so you would like for me to brainstorm a sort of simple down to earth paradox related to th- to everyday things yeah and something that i mean uh th- what it what it is is a, a demonstration or a performance of is a bit open ended but when we went back to say the osborne effect and for listeners mm-hmm. This was a couple of episodes back, but I challenged David to come up with an analogous kind of insight for the physical Doppler effect, but in social psychological terms. And David responded with a very interesting uh, comparison of someone whispering in your ear versus a shotgun blast down the street. And in fact, which is louder, the shotgun blast shouldn't be as loud due to proximity but that that had a kind of paradoxical sort of element but the the focus was a social cultural psychological equivalent metaphorical resonance with the doppler effect so that was a little bit more structure um let's say that the the underlying theme here is is the reality of change I think that that is the that's in keeping with what Zeno was talking about. Uh, it's I mean, this is the great Greek philosophical question. You know, is the world one thing or many? And is there an underlying fundamental reality? And all that we see of change is is surface or misconception or something inherently defective in our perception. And that's a pretty big theme, uh, you know, in Eastern philosophy and religion, too. I think it has a different angle there. But the Greeks were were very much in the moment. They're not talking about, well, is there a life to come or, you know, cycles of reincarnation, uh, that slaving meat wheel, as Kerouac said, I wish I was free of that slaving meat wheel and safe in heaven dead. The Greeks were really about, no, is this stuff around me right now really around me? What does mm-hmm. that mean? You know? Um, and I always, I encourage you to draw on, you know, the fatherhood experiences and things that you're seeing maybe with Gus. You're also coming off this big family, uh, you know, a kind of a performance, a bit of an ongoing pageant of, and maybe something triggered that then. But, the, the key to Zeno's paradoxes is, is the beauty of the visualization. There are wonderful bits of poetry or, or theater or filming. He was a good film director in that sense, you know? Okay. I'll see what I come up with. And yeah, same as every time, I guess. Just <laughs> I have notes. These are no, no, notes from... Uh, from two weeks ago. So what we're what's happening now is that um, what's happening now is that we are sort of getting a backlog of notes, which is no big deal. We're not on any kind of schedule here, but Chris's mind moves at a very rapid pace. 
faster than we can talk it out usually. So I have your notes from a few weeks ago that we didn't quite get to. And they this is called the tyranny of imagery. If I can get to it on my phone in time. Here we are. The tyranny of image, sorry. Imagine you have 48 hours to assemble a photograph album of your life, and you can only take one selfie of you now. What does that flow of imagery say? Is that even a reasonable way to think? What if we focus solely on what the album says about you? What if the robustness of your sense of self depends on the detail and continuity of the images? Would yourself start to destabilize and change forms because of the discontinuities, the incongruities, the essential incompleteness of the album? Is it a brute question of the more pictures, the more person? Think of all the possible scenarios across the spectrum, from no album at all to no or only a very few pictures, to tight or flowing series, but with missing episodes all the way to supersaturation of certain periods. I suggest this may be a helpful... Oh, one second, sorry, pause. Get out. All good? Oh, look. Yeah, we got a, we got a live one here. All right. I suggest this may be a helpful perspective on the nature of memory. It is a metaphor, and therefore perhaps just another metaphor, but it's based on a very direct relationship, which finds global human performance minute to minute. I think it's about as unabstract as any metaphor can be. Plus, I reckon it's just plain interesting to even consider for a moment that our meat and bone blood and nerve beings might be depend might depend on a sequence as in a linear, linear series of photographs. Try to imagine the wild surmise when still stick figures started to move and dance without the need of fire shadows on cave walls or the ministry of some hallucinogenic fungus when the moon's holding water and there seems to be a local surplus of virgins. It's a nice little poetic bit there at the end. I, I could actually, yeah, thanks. I could actually see incorporating that into sort of a bit of music. I was having some fun with that. I that uh, yeah, that was that was I love your readings too. It gives me another perspective on it. Cool, yeah. I do, you know, it is interesting because this tyranny of image seems to really get my gears turning in relation to the imaginative challenge that you just gave in terms, because that feels like a very Zeno, Zeno's arrow type idea where is a person's memory and life dependent on a series of images. And I like this idea of saturations of images too, almost like, you know, a pen going across a page and occasionally the ink bleeds and you have right. like a blot there in the middle. That, that's a that's a fascinating way of looking at what what memory is but something like that that is uh non-local and not really well it is contingent but it's it's naturally arising throughout time in instances outside of its origin origination 
Right. And it's it's implicitly in, intermittent in that way. It can't be, it's oscillating. It can't really be, you know, there's not a consistent flow, which goes against some people's thinking about the nature of memory. Uh, the other thing I think, and this is really, it just keeps hitting home because I think this is something uh, as we were just discussing about the nature of sort of the the end, the terminal end of the age of rock and roll and all of that, its implications. We weren't talking just in terms of pop music, but something much deeper. I, I think that there has been some really major changes within, say, the last 50 years. Uh, I mean, I I know that there is so much more photographic record and evidence that my university students have about their lives now than people did, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, I remember, and I think I've shared this on the show distinctly, when I was in grad school at the University of Washington in Seattle, I uh, was was teaching a, a freshman, you know, English 101 class. And one of my assignments was based on uh, bringing in a family photograph uh, to see, you know, what truth it told and, and maybe what, what truth it didn't tell. And I really had some problems with my minority students at the time because they they didn't have photographic records to work with that photo you know and it wasn't just uh students of color it but i realized that the ability to access or to have on hand family photographs said everything about stability and you know cohesion in families consistency of families but then i look back at my own life which would have it would appear to have you know many more advantages that way and it's very peculiar the fossil record it is very peculiar and if you were to say not just that this record is a kind of performance or imitation or parallel river to memory but that it might be the actual expression of one's life well the conclusion is that i somehow went into hibernation or disappeared you know, this is what happens to people. And I think it's it's very strange. And given the authority that we assign to photographs today, and this is why I use that expression, the tyranny of image, I think we're putting ourselves in a very, very peculiar position that way. Uh, and there are some really... Uh, Pete, Philip K. Dick and Andy Warhol both sort of explore this idea about what happens to people, real their, their real physical being, if they don't see enough imagery of themselves, they start to fade, you know? And I think there's something to that that is very recent, really. I think it has emerged with the absolute uh, saturation level and the capability of taking photographs minute to minute uh, with phones and social media avenues of sharing. But I think that this could be, and I'm not talking here in any way about the problems of doctoring images, okay? That's its own problem. 
Uh, and, and there are many good thinkers talking about how particularly that affects young people, particularly young girls. Um, and we know people post on social media, you know, to present a certain kind of image. I, I'm not saying those aren't incredible problems, but I think before we even get to that, that we are photograph dependent in certain ways. And that also that has influence when people don't take photographs. You know, it becomes more of a decision about that, a gesture not to mm-hmm. take a photograph, you know. Uh, so that was kind of on my mind there. But I think that that opening line of the tyranny of image is, is what has been... Uh, because I think that does relate so much to our, our sense of self and and also to how how practically speaking we organize memory. Yeah, it's it does have the word tyranny is really good for it because it does have a kind of effect on um our ability to remember things differently. I think that if everything is recorded and there are hundreds and hundreds of pictures arranged in such a way the more in in depth and the more moment by moment the pictures occur the less wiggle room it has for you to create a current sense of self in terms of you know when i look at my mother's photo albums of me when i was a kid it's interesting because she had polaroid cameras and she had kodak cameras and she had to be very choosy with what she decided to take pictures of And I like looking through all those old albums that she has because little fragments of memory that are really not much more substantial than the pictures themselves will come through, although they are tinged with uh, feeling, sometimes smell, sometimes an auditory sensation, but usually not much more substantial than, than the picture themselves. But it is interesting because it it makes me feel more as though things are less set in stone. I wonder too, this just, this just popped into my head. You know, Terrence McKenna talks a lot about, you know, time, time warp zero and the fact that 2012 was the end of something and that time would speed up and speed up and speed up. And I wonder if one of the tyranny of image is one of the consequences of such is this sense of sped up time right? The more the past is documented and the more that memory is outsourced, the faster time seems to go by, right? Maybe almost as though memory acts as a kind of molasses through which our experience can, can move, right? Like a, like a David Foster Wallace passage, whereas, you know, James Elroy might take three pages to say something, David Foster Wallace with all the digressions and thoughts would take 20 pages to do so. Maybe that is also a function of memory as a as a stopgap against this onslaught of time. I think that's absolutely what's happening, and I think that the there's no question that that the the resonance between photography, if individual photographs and memory, is really in, in at the cultural level the management of time. And we're getting some enormously disturbing time distortions uh, 
cultural amnesia is is one obvious example of that but the bubbling and the siloing of of memory and experience and shared reference points uh, is getting so micro generational now that it's going to be impossible for people to talk to anyone you know outside their cohort with with that being defined now as being the exact same age you know it's really really getting so narrowly uh packaged but i think that one of the things that that really has uh some just super significant implications for us and for our listeners uh is the kind of, and you mentioned two interesting writers, I like the choice of Elroy and Wallace, because yes, very different management of time. Uh, they seem to be on sort of very different drugs that way. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like neuro-linguistic programming is kind of at work in both of them, but on very different sort of speeds and styles and stuff. I think that we've gotten to a point now where there are there's a complete resistance to the medium of their style and pace of communication that we we don't want any awareness of the medium at all we want the instantaneity of of the photograph we don't even want to have to think about well, who's taking that photograph? Who's what angle is this from? What's the deal? You know, increasingly, we just want the image. And I can all I'm also mean dynamic imagery. So we're talking video as well, live, not just a static photograph. But I think we don't want to think about those as, as artifacts or constructions. You know, that's a very inconvenient thought. We really want them to be reality mm -hmm. even though we're not happy maybe with the uh the tyrannical implications of that yeah no i could definitely see that i can see that and that makes so much sense in terms of well of the many reasons people are stressed out these days that's got to be at least one of them is this oh, yeah. idea that yeah, is this idea that you have not just that reality is being substituted for you by a bunch, by a series of digital images, but that you crave that in a kind of way. You've given over this function that your brain is supposed to perform to these images, and you begin to shy away from the difficulty of engaging in memory without the aid of the digital image. And the more you do that, it's like not working out. It's basically the same idea as people who don't want to go to the gym because it's uncomfortable. And so they get heavier and heavier and heavier and less healthy and less healthy and less healthy because that is work. And that has to be a part of it too mentally now is that the idea of building memory yourself feels too difficult for people. And so they're getting more and more, uh, who is it? This uh, Japanese philosopher, Azuma said, that uh, people who are really into anime, he called them database animals. <laughs> and I like, I like the term database animals because these are people who are obsessed with um, not story, not character, 
not even animation, but in the ticking of boxes. So they want their shows and their books to, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen people who wear the cat ears, like the cartoons that have the cat ears. No. It's very it's very important for a database animal that cat ears appear in their story, whether or not it has anything to do with the plot. And I want I like to steal that term, database animal, and apply it to this kind of person that you're talking about, right? Like a they they're looking for digital representations of a thing that make for an easier, if much shallower and faster version of of real reality well said and i uh that that jives interesting with um i've just started reading but i really uh it's an it's a i think a really already very compelling uh book in progress a non-fiction book that that it it looks at two great american neighborhoods and we could say black neighborhoods, Harlem historically, and the pre-Katrina Ninth Ward in New Orleans, and the richness of street life, language, cuisine, the whole vibrant vibe. And what happened to those? Because uh, there, there's a sense that, that both really suffered enormous decline with crime and drugs well in, in new orleans case before katrina but we you know certainly harlem was was you know harlem in the 70s with the heroin epidemic was already kind of falling apart but one of the 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 ideas of it is that the author asserts that there was a sense that these communities were like live performance theater. They were ongoing enfolding ceremonies of, of commerce and interaction and intimidation and joy and eat, you know, the whole of life. And that the underlying agreement was that everyone was, was part of that. You brought something to that. You might've just been a bit player. Maybe you were just passing through, but whatever your energy was part of the context, the mood, the medium. And I think that ties back into the two writers that you mentioned, of Wallace and Elroy, that we used to go to those writers because, and to writers generally, if we were that inclined, because there was a kind of richness of style and mood, and you had to kind of calibrate, you know? I remember thinking, like, uh, is it, I can't remember what, uh, it was an early Elroy piece that I started with. And one of his big, thick, just, I mean, I don't know what drug he was on. He was just whacked out. But it's just this flow of just old LA poetry, more than any, tinged with crime, but not really tinged with plot. I had no idea. But once I got into the groove of it, I thought, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. wow. That sounds like white jazz. That yes, white that's jazz. what it was. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. White jazz. Yes. That's exactly what. And I can remember where I was when I was reading it. It was a completely different world. It was like a in a really tropical setting. And I was nowhere near gritty Los Angeles and old Bunker Hill. And, you know, that lost L.A., pre-Bukowski sort of L.A. Uh, 
now I don't think that's what people want. I think they want a kind of transparency. You mentioned the immediacy, the instant nature of it. And I think we, they want to walk into reality without any kind, in a neighborhood sense, without any kind of mediation or context. And this uh, extended essay, which may be uh, a book that I'm, I'm uh, sort of the beta reader for, um, it makes that point, and and the and the end extension or where I've gotten to, is looking at um, South Philadelphia, and uh, the drug and catatonic crisis there, and the author's explanation is this is what happens when people don't really want to be part of any context at all. The context vanishes, you know, and uh, so um, I don't know what, what you think about that, but I think there's something in this that the photograph offers this very seductive window at first, and then it's not a window; to, it it is the thing unto itself. Yeah, and yeah. suddenly we are left without context. We're not reading as much. We're not enjoying this flow of language and real culturalization around localized places, particularly in American literature. Uh, we get more and more distance and we have real trouble seeing ourselves as participants. And if we're not participants, well, then we're spectators or bystanders or maybe we're just scraped on the street, you know. Absolutely. And I think that the first question that would come to my mind in the case of South Philadelphia, you said that people didn't want to be a part of any context at all. And I think we're getting right to the heart of it. So if you don't want to be a part of a context, what do you want to be a part of? Right. Well, and I think there there is an amazing disorientation there psychologically and maybe even cosmologically, because it may be a real, uh, not an articulate attempt, but nonetheless, a, a, a practically operative attempt to, to be bigger than context, to not need context. You mm -hmm. can just do it on your own, David. You don't even, you know, you don't need a town in Oklahoma or Oklahoma or anything. You can just do it all on your own. And that is where I think this deep existential loneliness really ratchets up. I mean, I think we certainly had that, you know, I was born into that world, but when, when that was kind of glimmers I got of that were totally different than, than what I was seeing. It had a lot to do with war and destruction and the real fear of extinction. And I don't think that's the level that people are on today all the time now. I think the the loneliness, the alienation, the disconnect comes from uh, a feeling that that context in this deep matrix sense of language, culture, connection, and something we're all part of that we can we don't have to do that. And content doesn't have to have context, which is really right. interesting. So we've moved from art, books, music, songs that are longer than three minutes. Uh, movies, and now we have content that is made to be immediately understood and digested in 20 seconds.
I don't know if you've scrolled TikTok, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are context free. In some cases, the context is so little that it's just a person's face talking to you. You don't even get to see what kind of car they're driving or what their surroundings look like. There is no context. And if you spend too much time in that, you become a database animal like the rest of them. And database animals, they don't want they don't want context. It's it's with the opposite of wanting context just be the desire to consume, perhaps, to just be a consumer of the surroundings, not an inhabitant, but a consumer? That's a great question. That's a great question. Let's reframe that with antonym therapy and say, what would be the antonym or the inverse of to inhabit? Is it, to, I mean, I like the idea of it, of a consumer. I just, I, I, and I'm not saying that's not right. Uh, no, I like what you, I like where you're going with this. The opposite of to inhabit would be to, well, to spectate. Man, that's a really, what is the opposite of inhabiting a space or inhabiting anything? It would be to exile? Something like that, because I was thinking of, of um, I've kind of consolidated my office space and made it, uh, brought in some of the musical instruments and sort of cleaned, kept the, the living area a little bit more open. And I was thinking of, of inhabiting my house, <clears throat> inhabiting my space, because I'm really proud of it. <clears throat> and I really, it's a really important part of my, <clears throat> my, my good vibe, if, you know, Insofar mm-hmm. as I have a good vibe. Uh, so I thought, okay, what would be the flip of that? Well, to be contained in, in a negative way, to be imprisoned or restricted. But that's not kind of what we were talking about. And I, I like the idea of exile. Exile is a really beautiful word. Uh, it has, you know, long, long history of power. And, and resonance. And it works on both the individual level, but certainly on the culture-wide level. A people, a people can be exiled, as we know. Uh, I like that sense of um, that it's more than just, it's not imprisonment or, or, or the negative side of container, uh, containerism, which I think is what consumerism sort of got me to there. Uh, I think it is a sense of, uh, well, the the Rolling Stone that's that's just doesn't need. It's the Rolling Stone sort of anti-hero. Uh, the end of that long shadow that started with the rock and roller. I think we've reached the end of that where I don't need nothing, you know, except the younger people now need to be in constant contact with each other, constant. Mm-hmm. And they instant response, you know? Mm-hmm. So I like that idea. I think exile is a really beautiful word. It's and a self-imposed exile. Without the E. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's cool. Lost Explorer style. Yeah. Exile. Yeah. No, that's cool. And it's a self-imposed one. And I think the idea of the Rolling Stone in its 
purest nostalgic form from say the hitchhikers of the 60s and all the cool counterculture stuff was perhaps their ability to inhabit different contexts in a quick way they were context animals in that way whereas if you're in a kind of exile especially this digital exile you suffer from the psychic whiplash of having to constantly inhabit contextless arenas with the sole desire of extracting the mood or bit of data from it right it's all about ones and zeros it's about what is the data how do i pull this out how do i uh how can i find a recipe for uh you know fettuccine alfredo in three minutes and how can i get an ai to do that for me how can i learn french without really having to study at all is there a passive way that i can do this um or perhaps is the way to learn a language to immerse yourself into the culture of the language itself and watch the movies and visit the country and talk to native speakers no 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 is there a way that i can have an app that every day a little cartoon owl can ding at me and remind me that i have to practice my <laughs> practice my french or my polish or, or whatever it is it's the the to exile yourself from context and to really have no interest in context is to turn yourself into somebody who believes that they are above context, which is what you said, that you're, if you're above context, you're almost, you see yourself as a demiurgical figure who's simply yeah. able to distract data, extract data, man-made data from things. I can learn how to speak Japanese in two weeks and I can teach you how. Send me $5,000 and I'll, you'll speak Japanese in two weeks with my time-tested, proven, you know, app that just flashes shit at you as fast as it can. <laughs> well, this is, I think we're really, we're, we're, we're getting to something here because it isn't just uh, fast food going to instant food, instant gratification. It is the complete sterilization of context because you mentioned learning a language and there are all these apps man i was thinking about that you know and i remember uh i had a really just incredibly hot french teacher who you've mentioned her yeah she must yeah, stick she must yeah. stick in your mind <laughs> uh well and she, but she said to us you know if you really want to learn french well and I happened to be the one she looked at. She goes, well, get a French girlfriend or a French boyfriend. She made it, you know, inclusive. But she said, you know, French kiss. And, you know, and she said, you know, what does a hooker think French means? You know, and it's a romance language. And she got, you know, and she was really right about that. That, But all languages, that's a great incentive to learn a language. Because I want to communicate, you know, with this person. And not just communicate, but, you know, get their clothes off or do things with them, have, you know, amazing adventures with them. And I think that passion and energy to be part of something in a really super contextualized way just seems like an inconvenience and just that's not what what the, you know, people do now. But also, I think that uh, this idea of being a digital pilgrim, being a digital tourist, being a digital 
adventurer. I think that everyone knows that, yeah, that could be convenient and it could be rewarded financially, but it's so pathetic. You know, all of those beautiful words like pilgrimages and caravanserai, you know, think about, you know, nomads crossing the Sahara, you know, I mean, and the music and the strange lore and magic and hallucinations of those experiences. I mean, you lose all that if you don't. That's that's what the real content is. It is the context. And going, uh, touching on one of our ongoing heroes, which I am, I'm, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I really will reach out to him to, to join us or me or something. But Rupert Sheldrake, because in his latest uh, couple of books talking about integrating spiritual practices into, you know, his milieu, intellectual scientific life in a way that, you know, that is really meaningful. One of the key things that he talks about is pilgrimages around the great churches of England. And I read recently about uh, a woman who, she she's uh, British, and she and her family have done this. And she's got kids a little bit older than Gas. They're able to really sort of walk on their own. But she said that she got this idea from, uh, from Sheldrake. And she said that we don't have really any Christian orientation ourselves. We have it in our upbringing. But who cannot love these beautiful churches and the, the mood of contemplation around them? But she said, you know, even that's not the point that Sheldrake is right in the physicality, the shared journey, the non-flimsy metaphorical notion of let's go on a pilgrimage, you know, let's do that holding hands with the kids. And she said that that has ingrained so much into her family's uh, stability and, mm. and, and energy cheerfulness enthusiasm that she said it's just far it it has nothing to do with the religious element per se nothing certainly not with the christian element of it religious in a broad, broader sense maybe but she wasn't really willing to concede that it was just the physicality of doing that so i think that in it that digital movement existence which is really an extension of the photographic revolution is what has really i mean we didn't get turned into ghosts without being killed you know i think something in us has died to get us to the ghostly level that we're on now really well said i think that's a good place to stop right there i have uh well no i have another thought it reminds me of people often misunderstand chaos magic as a purely extractive and appropriative mode of doing magic. And in my experience of it and with people who do it, it's, it's quite the opposite. It does involve that kind of non-Christian pilgrimage idea in which people understand the context that they're going into and the context from which they're arriving. But they do so with an understanding and that kind of rolling stone ability to inhabit those contexts in a 
significant way for them and sometimes even the context into which they are they're entering and that to me is the opposite of extractive and appropriative that's that's getting into different pools with people which brings me to my imaginative challenge uh but i'll stop right there okay i i look i'm really hanging out to hear this but there are two things that i just i don't want to forget them Okay, and I think they're so relevant to our discussion. Two things I wanted to, to ask about. Uh, you use the word, and I often do too, of outsourcing memory, which is the notion of the internet and data banks and all of that sort of thing. And that links back to our earlier discussions about indigenous remote cultures where memory is hard memory is what I called it. It's, it's the, the physical memories of people. And when someone dies, that's something significant lost. Yes, there are artifacts. There are you know, ways that they are recording. And they, too, are outsourcing. But I wanted just to flag to you, because I really, and, and listeners, please feel, I would appreciate any insight here. I think we know what David meant by outsourcing. Uh, and I think it's a perfectly valid word. But I'm looking for something an, an alternative to that. I feel like I had that doesn't quite get it. It's it's almost I'm looking for that word that I would almost capitalize all the time because I think it's such a fundamental process. And if it does have historic roots, and I'm not saying it doesn't, part of the claim of the book that I'm I'm working on is that we have reached a point of such radical amplification, it can't be considered really in the same light as the ancient Egyptians, for instance, or, or what have you. The second thing, David, is, is you touched on, at, and I love this idea, and listeners know exactly uh, what David was talking about, but uh, the, the context was video games, where a city, for instance, beautifully rendered graphically, it's not really fully there you were referring to the, the only the parts that say a game participant would experience are really there. The rest is a kind of shell. Okay. Mm -hmm. So David, I wanted to just, we don't have to pursue that now. I'd like you to give both these and then listeners to please more thought on this is I really want to have a phrase for that process what's going on there because i think it's so beautiful and so insidious but i also want to be able to understand it well enough to contrast it really effectively in my mind with um i'm using the model of universal studios back in the days when i was a kid my it was a poignant trip because my my mom took me there on my own one of the few things she did after the divorce because my dad was usually the fun weekend parent, you know, so this was something very special, but it blew my mind to see Mayfield where leave it to beaver was filmed right next to the wild west towns. And I realized, geez, you know, that hotel looks awfully familiar. And of course, it, you know, it too has the problem. It's not really a hotel. So it's related to your video idea. And I certainly appreciate there's a difference between the physical universal studios and the more, I think, deceptive, insidious uh, cyber architecture 
that you're talking about. But I would really like to get on top of that. I, I really, I don't think that's one one phrase or one word that is going to do me there. Although it's possible, maybe if the engineers and designers have a phrase they use, uh, maybe you know it. I don't know, but to really be clear on that, so I'm I would really appreciate your help specifically, David, because you're so good at this, and you, I think, came up with that, uh, or introduced me to that that metaphor model analogy. Um, but yeah, any if any listener has any thoughts, I'm grateful. Totally. That's cool. That's kind of a week-long imaginative challenge in its own way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind yeah, of, yeah. that's why I wanted to sneak it in now because yeah, right, I didn't right. expect an easy answer. Yeah. 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 I'll have to definitely I've got both those notes taken down. So I'll look at that. The all this talk that we've done about context. Uh, and bringing it down to walking to the store to get a beer or hanging out with people waiting for the fireworks on 4th of July. Something that I did a lot over this extended weekend involved pools and hanging out in pools, playing with kids in pools, being around other adults in pools. And I noticed something that I'm going to call pool communication because communication becomes simpler and you're able to get away with saying less when you're in a pool without it being awkward like it would be if you were standing next to somebody holding a beer now fascinating just by itself (laughs) (laughs) so um when you're talking about uh terms of mediation and context you know you mentioned uh old la and there being this kind of overarching context that people were able to be within uh, that goes beyond dialect and race and social class and being in a being in a milieu together. And the kind of lackadaisical floating in a pool feeling leads to what is called pool communication, where we're all in the same context, i.e. we are all in the water together. So we have physically entered into a new medium of space that we all share contextually and we no longer feel the need to communicate the way we would uh, on land, which is not context-less, but is perhaps more malleable in that way. So I'm putting forward pool communication as my as my idea for this imaginative challenge. Well, I love that idea. I think that is a return, you know, a mammalian return to the water. Uh, it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting things going on. I think that's a great subject start. So, do we have a paradox form? How do how, do, how would the paradox get expressed? The uh, just the that I guess when you would feel the need to communicate more because you're in an unfamiliar environment, you suddenly communicate less. I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because you would think, you know, you're in a pool, there's a little bit of danger. It's not very dangerous, but especially if there are babies around. Clothing. The the clothing. Less less clothing, less, less any of that. You would think, you know, if you and I were sitting in a room together with our shirts off, it might get a bit awkward and we might talk a lot to fill that silence and make it slightly less awkward not awkward anymore all we got to do is sit in water and suddenly pretty much whatever we do within reason yeah is cool man you know 
Oh, I think you're building on the Osborne effect beautifully there. I think that's very insightful. I was hoping it would take sort of some direction that that built on or or draws on your your recent uh, family uh, saturation because I knew you you'd gotten some heavy saturation. Heavy. So I thought, well, this will have some implications. So <laughs> I'm not not surprised about that. I think that could really be beautifully explored in. Uh, in a psychology course context, I, th- I could see that being, um, I have a friend, I haven't spoken to her for a while, but uh, she's in the New York area and her gig has is, is been really incorporating theater. Uh, she gave up wanting to be an actor, actor, but she likes theater's education of how that might be a theater sort of approach to some psychological truths in, in social terms. And I would suspect that, that there is very much um, an enculturated aspect to this. I think that, that you look at, you know, for instance, just say the Japanese and, and Icelanders who do a lot of public bathing and oftentimes yeah. nude bathing, you right. know, so you get a whole different perspective on, on the body. And I, I can't help but think that, when you add in the new, as in very contemporary, hyper, hyper anxious obsessions about gender and sexual orientation and race, that if you threw all that in the pool, you might have some real turbulence. Yeah, yeah, some turbulence or I mean, or it could be everybody just maybe that would be great therapy. Maybe it would be a really good therapy for people to get into a pool together and not feel the need to qualify themselves and, you know, talk endlessly about whatever it is that's on their mind. Maybe just hanging out in the same pool space with people who are different from you physically, ideologically, whatever. That could be good therapy. I wonder if anybody does that. If there's pool no, I was just you just made me ask myself, surely these big tech companies and liberated corporations would have been looking at some of these things. I mean, they looked at a lot of crazy ideas, you know, starting, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but I don't recall ever. I mean, mm-hmm. what because you had a there's a beautiful simplicity mm-hmm. to what you're talking about. It it really seems very well, at least you you've phrased it that way so it doesn't have any of that you know newfangled sort of you know guru sort of thing it just seems very practical and (laughs) i think that's that's what makes it maybe too too interesting and too simple in a rich intricate way Mm -hmm. for uh you know so-called therapists and hr people maybe i don't know although Mm -hmm. you know well, our idea about prison reform, as in prison architectural reform, well, not just architecture, no, the sociology of it, like that was, you know, so we're, we've got some practical ideas. We'll keep yeah. keep a record of these and maybe Absolutely. just put out, you know, another publication. Of going, Here's just some humble suggestions. <laughs> the humble assignments. Yeah. 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 Cool. Do you have a tool and a tip for us today? Yeah, um, I I was I'm still processing uh, 
a point that I raised about my uh, big expedition up the road to Seattle, which was a, a, a significant solo road trip both ways, as well as the month there and all of the different audiences and worlds and relationships that were there to be navigated. And that I had these really incredible exchanges with strangers that were very satisfying or intriguing or there's so many different variations on it but nonetheless I was always engaged as opposed to well frustrations or sometimes sadnesses or whatever with people you know say family and friends you know I think that's and you could say look well that's the stakes are much lower with strangers. Not always, of course. Anyway, I, I was processing all of this and trying to make sure that I wasn't romanticizing the stranger-to-stranger interactions, listening to some of the actual recordings I made, because sometimes I didn't do that. But the really important ones I didn't, because I didn't want to interrupt, and I thought it was kind of rude and a violation of privacy. But I did come around to the very cliched expression that with some people who I really wanted to get through to, who I think really have quite high stakes in in having some understanding and engagement with me, I felt I was literally talking to the wall. And I have mentioned as a a tool uh, of actually talking to oneself in the mirror in the past, but I did an experiment of just actually talking to one of my walls. And like my interest in North African music, I was quite willing to push it. You know, the the Arab music influence is always to push the drone. Uh, Northern Indian music is like that. It's just take that right at least that's what how Westerners, I think, hear it. So I really pushed it. I thought I'm going to make myself talk till I'm blue in the face, to use another cliche. But I'm going to talk to the wall because that's my metaphor for what it, you know, what it felt feels like sometimes to talk to people I really want to get through to. Well, as always with these things, if you if you practice them sincerely, they open up some very interesting questions. Because practically speaking, how close was I going to be to the wall? Did I need to be right up against it in some sort of confrontational way? Or would I adapt the more conversational thing as if talking at the kind of distance that I would physically? And I thought, well, you know, so I had to make those sort of decisions. And that got me thinking about things in a different way. So the moment, and this is the first aspect of the tool, the moment I engaged with this possibly ridiculous idea of talking to a wall in very pointed terms and really pushing the the limit until I was just talked out, believing in that sincerely really did put some things together in my mind. And I'm I'm not prepared, ready yet, or maybe even willing to try to put too uh, sharp a focus on that, uh, particularly not relative to, you know, 
the conversational aspects of talking to family and friends versus the stranger situations. I think I did gain a lot of insights into what's going on that's different. And the mechanic interdynamics have a lot to do with your, your pool scenario. So mm-hmm. I think it, there's a resonance there that you know we hadn't talked about or prepared for. Um, and I think that when you start to become a little bit more really savvy in how some of these fairly structured relationships are going and you engage with the structure, as we say, rather than trying to just penetrate instantly and be there, no context. Now get with the context, but don't hyper-focus on the context in one situation and then completely deny that there's a context in the other because that's kind of insane. And that's Mm -hmm. easily, easily done, easily done. Um, so that's my, my tool. And, uh, my tip is this, I think I've mentioned this, uh, psychologist friend of mine who, he moved to Denver. And so I, we, we talk now as friends and, uh, it was just my birthday and there was this sort of that, but he didn't, that, that isn't what he said at first. He didn't go happy birthday. Uh, he said, uh, I'm just checking in and on about how you're doing and, and your rhythms. Mm-hmm. And I said, what, what, what? And he said, well, you know, look, I, I am, you know, a psychologist and a professional listener by trade, you know? And he said, I just am, I'm aware that you have certain cycles, you know, and you've just had this art exhibit and this big trip. And he said, I can just kind of feel and I said, yeah, 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 okay. Um, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and and he said, so what, is it taking kind of a uh, an exhausted, despairing form or are you more on the manic uh, edge, the rising arrow? You know, when an arrow shoots, where you overshoot a target, there's a kind of a strange, going back to Zeno. Um, this is true of blowguns too, but it's really, it, you can notice it more with an archery arrow. It seems as if the last moments, seconds of the arrow flight are so much faster, so much faster. Mm, Whereas if you get a beautiful smack bullseye with that, you know, slapping a, a really nice behind, just it, there's an evenness to it, like a straight smooth, but that, when the arrow flies a little high for some reason, and it's not to the side either. So that rising sort of action. And so, yeah, he, I, I said that was the, you know, where I, uh, I'm i at. And I so I said, okay, well, Mr. Therapist, you know, uh, what's your recommendation? And uh, he said, okay, what's the simplest thing you can do for yourself right now while you're on the phone still? And I thought, oh, well, I could lie down on my bed or my couch. And he said, well, there's your answer. Rest. I have really, just as I've gotten onto the dictation thing, after years of trying with that, and I I, I was in those days that the, the, the tapes would have just been transcribed. It wasn't, I wasn't dealing with some AI, you know, transcription software. Uh, 
I've, I've really gotten into just that moment of rest, not even closing my eyes, just, and it kind of fits in with what you were talking about your last episode about sort of morning routines. And it, it is sort of meditative, but I think it's really dog simple meditative stuff that you don't have to have a fancy philosophical position to get into. And you don't, you don't need to, to treat it in some sort of super sacred way, although you do need to be protective of it. You mentioned that. I think that's, uh, that's important, particularly when you live with other people. But simple things like the rest, you know, not a nap. I'm not, I mean, I have nothing against naps, but I'm not talking about a nap. I'm not even talking about anything to do with, with sleep. I'm talking about exactly what a dog or a cat would do and the immensely energizing effect of that. And just also the ability to control being able to do it. And I will say this, that if I ever, ever run into, and I do, because I'm now asking about this with people. When I encounter someone who says, well, I'd be afraid I'd fall asleep. I, mark that person in my mind that just like a dollar bill or a hundred dollars I know I don't really want to have too much to do with that person past a certain point Mm -hmm. there's a lot of those there's a lot of those no that's great I like the the rest aspect I like doing the simplest thing in general that is a great way to get the ball rolling although it's best not to do it with expectation of getting the ball rolling because that kind of defeats the whole purpose. But I really like the talking to a wall tool because what you were saying about how close am I going to sit to the wall? What, how loud am I going to speak? It's interesting because of the fact that it's a wall and it can't hear you so far as we know. And that suggests that these positions that you're taking in terms of proximity and volume are independent of the thing that you're talking to oh that's what i'm saying yes i do i do but i only do now because that was my experience but that's exactly right Mm -hmm. and you compare that to speaking into a microphone or just wandering out alone somewhere no the wall is absolutely an essential because of the decisions that come up as you just indicated and that experience uh and also i think anytime you break through a cliche and really give it your best shot you've learned something just by doing that but yeah it's those decisions and that has nothing to i mean it really it's an exercise in context because you're suddenly thinking well wait a minute is this what the real problem was? Because I felt the metaphor was very apt. Is it? Is that what it's like? Or, you know, a lot of things come come into play. Why would it feel strange, and it would feel strange, to be cut, to get naked and put your forehead right against the wall to talk to it? Why would that be weird? Exactly. The, the wall doesn't care. And if you said, you know, if you... If you took a hundred people and said, imagine the scenario of, of, you know, like talking to a wall, they might all visualize it and, and, you know, dramatize it differently. And a couple of people would obviously just statistically get there. 
You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people would get naked, I think. And some <laughs> people are going to be, you know, right. You know, yeah. Humping the wall. No, that's great. Have you been dreaming this week? I have. And this is, uh, well, I wanted to share this one because I think it, it really, it jumps out at me. And I know people will say, oh, you probably woke up and you just, you know, or were in such a hay. I'm going to. I think this was an example of really lucid dreaming capability. I firmly believe that. I don't know if other people uh, believe as fervently as I do in lucid dreaming, but I have been working on this for a long time in my life. And I'm not saying it's easily done or that I can control exactly when it happens. But here is the scenario. Now, men I think often joke about crazy women and and crazy girlfriends. And there is that. Uh, And I've certainly done that, but I have known two and really intimate close quarters, two women who I think were well and truly in serious psychotic terrain as in being dangerous, you know, uh, I thought to myself, the first one was my first wife. I thought to myself the other day that I had had the courage to take psychoactive drugs with her in weird parts of the world. And I thought, you know, that is an amazing thing to say because that is dangerous. I mean, there's no way on earth I could ever face that kind of danger again but anyway this dream was about and it was fairly realistic about the second woman who i don't think was anywhere near as potentially murderous as the first instance and fortunately i i bailed out of the whole thing but i was very very shocked when the delusional frame emerged because I had known her for a long time and in a business professional context. And I was really, really blown away, but that was sort of the real waking life scenario. But in the dream, uh, I was in bed with her and there was a very disturbing mood that, was a kind of rippling extension of the delusional frame that she had introduced, which was in the moment startling enough. But I was starting to get the feeling, oh, no, don't think the problem is, is it could be more. Mm-hmm. And despite wanting the sex of that situation, the vibe of leaving, somehow escape, was a deep psychic imperative. And this is where the lucid dreaming kicks in, because I firmly believe that I did not wake up, you know, have a drink of water or go take a piss. No, I, I, and I didn't roll over, no. I really felt very lucidly aware of this in the dream. And I knew I had to escape the bed, the bedroom context, you know, on out. So I did 
what I would have done in the dream. I got out of bed forcefully. I grabbed my clothes, which were on this sort of love seat sort of thing next to her dresser. And I left through the door and I turned right to turn right again into the bathroom to get dressed. And I had this immense sense of like real power in those simple gestures of being able to do that and clearly visualizing it. And think about that for like whenever we're in some sort of, you know, really awkward or even maybe scary situation. If you can break down what you need to do in response to that for the most practical and tactical avoidance or escape, whatever, if you can break that down with that level of clarity and precision and really be able to enact it as it's forming as its sort of list of, of to-do things, you know, then you don't have a problem, you know? Another one might come along, but you have got an almost reflex arc of solution to that. And I think we forget we're all capable of doing that. It just, we get jangled. Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I, I woke up and really started thinking about this and wanting to share this particular dream rather than a couple of others that were pretty exciting. Because it seemed to me that had I escaped by suddenly waking up, forcing myself in that sort of sense, I think I would there would have been a little bit of, of trauma there. I think I would have been disoriented for, you know, some amount of time. I think it probably would have affected maybe, you know, my physiology in some noticeable way if I was hooked up to monitors. I think it was just better for my whole being to do what I did and to try to work in terms of the dream, mm -hmm. you know? And I think this might be something about what we need to think about in our matrix, you know, enmeshed cyber life now of, well, do we give into that and play within those terms? Do, must we, do we try to, to break out of that? And are we willing to deal with the trauma of waking up? You know, so that's, I hope that was, uh, I, I did have some others to share, but I thought that was something I needed to talk about. It's fascinating. What I'm taking from it is that when you had this problem, you were able to, within the dream, break it down into tasks, turning right and then turning right again. And you can blow that up to an aphorism and say, you don't have problems, you have tasks. And I think that's a really helpful way to look at these kind of things. When you mentioned, though, our decisions to wake up from the matrix, are you saying that it would be more task-based to do that? Or it would be more like that, like you were mentioning, the, the trauma of directly unplugging from the dream and kind of jolting awake? How, I, I was, how... Yeah, I was thinking of the jolt. Um, and I, I I don't know if that's the only way to to escape or or to mitigate to mitigate the hypnosis and the dependence 
on on the matrix the the whole the tyranny of image the whole just superstructure of degraded culture that that is now the ruins that we're living in uh i was thinking about that sudden you know jolt or uh the deprogrammer rescuing the you know the the person from a cult or those kinds of, of breaks that seem to me um that they that they may have gradual backstories maybe but they in the end, they're like that arrow that oversails the target. They seem to speed up at the end, and they must, because there has to be a decisive moment of break. That'll be a good place for us to 